Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. We'll begin in prayer. Please stand. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty God and Father, grant us your Holy Spirit this evening to settle our hearts and focus our thoughts. Reveal to us the great mysteries of the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of our Lord. On this anniversary of the appearance of Our Lady of Guadalupe, we turn to Our Lady and we ask her intercession as we say, Hail Mary, Mary full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Joseph, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please welcome back Father Scalia. Well, I want to do first a, a little bit of a review from last week, just let me touch on sort of the basic principle that we're working from. <coughs> this series has been uh, entitled uh, Shadows of the Virgin, and I'm proceeding from what is called typology in the tradition of the church. And typology is a way of interpreting the Old Testament and seeing in the persons, the events, and even the objects of the Old Testament uh, certain types, actually better English would be figures, of persons and events in the New Testament. And so Adam is a type of Christ. And, uh, or Christ is the new Adam. Uh, the Ark, Noah's Ark, is a type, is a figure of the church, uh, and so on. And so there, there, there are many prefigurements of Our Lady in the Old Testament. And uh, last week we looked at a couple of them. This week, try to look at three of them and uh, see how far we get. And the three I'm going to try to get to, Judith, Esther, and the mother of the Maccabees. They are figures, uh, prefigurements uh, of Mary. By looking at these holy women of the Old Testament, we can understand Our Lady better. Our Lady really is the fulfillment of what these holy women point to. They, uh, at the same time, are certain fulfillments of Genesis 3.15, which you heard on Wednesday when you went to Mass for the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. If you did not, uh, the Book of Times for Confession. Okay. <laughs> but Genesis 3.15, of course, is the prophecy about the Blessed Virgin Mary, God speaking to the serpent and saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Or another translation, she shall bruise your head, or she shall crush your head. So there is a prophecy of one, um, and depending on the translation, one either a descendant of the woman or the woman herself who will crush the head of the serpent. And um, the women, some, well, one of the women especially, is a sort of a fulfillment of this. Our Lady is the ultimate fulfillment. And it's important on, on today, December 12th, the anniversary of the uh, apparition, of the last apparition of Our Lady of Guadalupe, calling to mind that uh, you know, the, the name Guadalupe was not what the natives heard. It's not what Juan Diego or his uncle heard Our Lady say. That's what the Spaniards thought they said, because Guadalupe was something familiar to them. It was a, a Marian shrine in Spain. But Our Lady didn't, didn't say Guadalupe. She didn't speak to Juan Diego in Spanish. Uh, she spoke to him in his native tongue. And uh, linguists suspect she said something to the effect of, I am she who crushes the head of the serpent. And that, in the native tongue, sounded to the Spaniards like Guadalupe. So Our Lady is the ultimate fulfillment of that. 
Uh, there are others that sort of, you know, uh, provisional fulfillments, if you will. Judges chapter 4, Jael, who is uh, a woman who crushes the head of the enemy of Israel. He's just been routed in battle, and he's in flight, and he takes refuge in her tent. And here's this wonderful, wonderful line. The wife of Haber took a pent egg and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground as he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. So the enemy of Israel should have known better than to take refuge in her tent. And then it's significant how she kills him, you know, striking his head. And then an obscure one when Abimelech who is one of Gideon's sons, who kills all of Gideon's other children uh, so that he can secure the throne. He is killed by, it simply says, it's one verse, Judges 9, verse 53, a certain woman threw an upper millstone upon Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. And so it's kind of this random thing, but again, these, these women who win victories for the people of God not just in general, but by crushing the head of the one who is assaulting the people of God. Uh, one last thing I want to point out before I talk about Judith is uh, I recommended a book last week by Rahner, not by Carl Rahner, by Hugo Rahner, Mary and the Church. It's a wonderful examination of how especially uh, the Church Fathers saw that the Blessed Virgin Mary is an image or a type, a prefigurement of the church herself. So what we find in Mary, we find also in the church. I'm going to touch on that this evening as we go along. So then, turning to Judith, you have your Bible. Let me just kind of set the stage. The Israelites refused to cave in to the empire the Assyrians. And so they were destined for destruction. And the Assyrians gather armies from throughout their empire and invade Israel and lay, lay siege to one particular city. So the people of God are under assault by their enemies. The city is uh, under siege. They're running out of food, running out of water, the army is much greater than theirs. And the men in charge of the city are convinced by the people to surrender the city. This is not the first time in Scripture that uh, men have not distinguished themselves very well. Aaron, what happens at the foot of Mount Sinai? What does Aaron do? Well, the people get restless. And they say, you know, Moses has been up there a long time. Uh, we don't know what's happened to him. Why don't you make gods for us? And so Aaron does. He apostatizes and makes pagan gods for the Israelites, and they worship. Saul, when Saul is instructed by the prophet Samuel to wait for him before going into battle, he said, wait for me, then I'll come and offer sacrifice, they will go into battle. Meanwhile, he can kind of sympathize with Saul. Meanwhile, the enemy army... Is, is getting bigger and bigger. And his own men are starting to desert. And Samuel's taking his time. And so Saul says, well, I'm going to do it myself. And so he offers sacrifice, which was not, it wasn't his place. Samuel arrives and says, he did what? And he says, because of this, uh, the kingship has departed from you. And that was pretty much the end, the beginning of the end for Saul. In other words, they were impatient, they didn't wait on the Lord, and they allowed the crowd to prevail upon them. So that's what's happening in Judith's town. And Judith, who is known as a holy woman, she is a widow, she is beautiful, she goes to the rulers. And she says, listen to me rulers of the people. What you have said to the people today is not right. You have even sworn and pronounced this oath between God and you. 
promising to surrender the city to our enemies unless the, the Lord turns and helps us within so many days. They set a deadline for God. They said, okay, well, if after five days, you know, things don't turn around, we'll surrender the city. Can you imagine people setting a deadline for God? Anybody who's ever done that? Who are you that you have put God to the test this day and are setting yourselves up in the place of God among the sons of men? You are putting the Lord Almighty to the test, but you will never know anything. You cannot plumb the depths of the human heart or find out what a man is thinking. How do you expect to search out God who made all these things and find out his mind or comprehend his thoughts? They were not letting God be God. They set the deadline. They thought they were in control. And now Judith is going to take the situation into her own hands. She goes to the enemy camp, feigning to be a deserter from the city and seeking refuge. And of course, the enemy camp and the leader, Holofernes, are only too willing to bring her in and give her shelter. Here's someone who can tell them about the city's weaknesses. Here's someone who's sort of the, you know, the first fruits of victory, if you will. Besides that, she's beautiful. And so Holofernes especially says, well, certainly, and I'll, I'll give you a tent. And uh, else you need. <laughs> he is enticed by her beauty. And she is there for several days. And while she is there, this is very interesting, she is faithful. She rises and uh, observes all of the norms of her people, uh, saying the prayers that she is, is meant to say, observing the dietary laws, not taking food from the table of the pagans. Uh, and so she is faithful in the midst of great depravity, faithful in the midst of her enemies. And then Holofernes has a feast. And he feasts a lot, and he invites her to come to the feast, and he drinks a lot. And he passes out. And then Judith goes into action. And she cuts off his head. She strikes the head of the one who is assaulting the people of God. Uh, here is another provisional fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, and another image of Our Lady who crushes the head of the serpent. Judith cuts off his head and returns to the city victorious. And what is said of her at that time has come into uh, uh, the liturgy of the church and is used usually on Marian feasts. And Judith sings this song. And bear with me, because as long as the last chapter of the book of Judith. Begin a song to my God with tambourines. Sing to my Lord with cymbals. Raise to him a new psalm. Exalt him and call upon his name. For God is the Lord who crushes wars. For he has delivered me out of the hands of my pursuers and brought me to his camp in the midst of the people. The Assyrian came down from the mountains of the north. He came with myriads of his warriors. Their multitude blocked up the valleys. Their cavalry covered the hills. He boasted that he would burn up my territory and kill my young men with the sword and dash my infants to the ground and seize my children as prey and take my virgins as booty. But the Lord God has foiled them by the hand of a woman. For their mighty one did not fall by the hands of the young men, nor did the sons of the titans smite him, nor did the tall giants set upon him. But Judith, the daughter of Merari, undid him with the beauty of her countenance. For she took off her widow's mourning to exalt the oppressed in Israel. She anointed her face with ointment and fastened her hair with a tiara and put on a linen gown to deceive him. Her sandal ravished his eyes, her beauty captivated his mind, and the sword severed his neck. The Persians trembled at, the, at her boldness. The Medes were daunted at her daring. Then my oppressed people shouted for joy, my weak people shouted, and the enemy trembled. They lifted up their voices, and the enemy were turned back. The sons of maidservants have pierced them through. They were wounded like the children of fugitives. They perished before the army of my Lord. I will sing to my God a new song. 
O Lord, thou art great and glorious, wonderful in strength, invincible. Let all thy creatures serve thee, for thou didst speak and they were made. Thou didst send forth thy spirit and it formed them. There is none that can resist thy voice. For the mountains shall be shaken to their foundations with the waters. At thy presence the rocks shall melt like wax. But to those who fear thee, thou wilt continue to show mercy. For every sacrifice as a fragrant offering is a small thing. And all fat for burnt offerings to thee is a very little thing. But he who fears the Lord shall be great forever. Woe to the nations that rise up against my people. The Lord Almighty will take vengeance on them in the day of judgment. Fire and worms he will give to their flesh. They shall weep in pain forever. Now I read that rather lengthy song, and somewhat frightening song as well, right? Because it brings out two things. The, the beauty of Judith and then the courage and the daring of Judith. Even before that, let me point out, I've touched on it already, she has what the men of the city don't have, trust in the Lord and patience, waiting for him to act, letting God be God, not precipitating the time of God's action, not setting a timetable for God. She is courageous, going into the enemy camp, not just with no weapon, but defenseless as a woman. She has great piety, observing all of the norms of her religion, even in the midst of the enemy's camp. And then there's her beauty. Her sandal ravished his eyes. And you can kind of imagine her sort of, you know, just dangling her sandal from her foot, and it's catching his attention. It's such a little thing, but she's got him. She's got him. Her beauty captivated his mind, and the sword severed his neck. Beauty is a very powerful thing, and it is something confounding to the evil one, as it was to Holofernes. Now then, what do we learn about Our Lady? Well, first, the patience and the waiting. Patience and waiting for our Lord's birth patience and waiting for our Lord to reveal himself. For 30 years, it was an unremarkable life, so unremarkable that no one recorded it. For 30 years, she's waiting for him to reveal himself. She waits patiently for him to rise from the dead, uh, hoping against hope, more perfectly than anyone else. She is not setting a deadline or timetable for God. Or is she? What's significant about Our Lady is that actually she is given the privilege to do that. And I can't think of anyone else in Scripture who does. They have no wine, she says to her son at the wedding feast at Cana. And he says, how does this concern of yours involve me? My hour has not yet come. And she says, in effect, yes, it has. She sets things in motion by revealing himself at the wedding feast at Cana. He sets in motion the events that will bring him to the cross. Or rather, Our Lady is given the privilege of setting things in motion. It's really an extraordinary privilege that she is given. And I can't think, I'm willing to be correct on this, but I can't think of any other figure in Scripture that is allowed that privilege. Typically in scripture, people are punished for putting God on a timeline, for trying to give God a schedule. But Our Lady is allowed to do this. Think of Our Lady's piety as our Lord is carrying the cross, as he is on the cross. She is in the midst of the enemies of Israel. She is in the midst of the people who are striking the chosen one of God. Uh, and yet she remains faithful. It's, it's very interesting. Judith, it would have been understandable if Judith had said to God, hey, listen, you know, it's kind of difficult for me to keep the dietary laws here in the enemy's camp. So, uh, you know, I think maybe I could get a break for a couple days, you know. But she doesn't. She's faithful to this little thing. Think of that next time. It's Friday, okay, and you want to dispense yourself from the Friday mortification, saying, well, you know, I'm at a party and, you know, whatever else, or it's during Lent and you want, you want to cut corners on your Lenten resolution, 
well, it's St. Patrick's Day, or at least it's a St. Patrick's Day party, even though St. Patrick's Day was three weeks ago, you know. Um, that fidelity to the little things is extraordinarily important. And Our Lady, patient, faithful, pious, and the courage, the courage to you know, speak to her son so boldly, the courage to follow her son as he's carrying the cross, the courage that none of the apostles had, except St. John. And finally, the beauty of Our Lady. The beauty. What is it about beauty that beguiles the evil one? What is it? Evil wants to possess, dominate, and ultimately destroy beauty. Because what evil is, is it's a disfigurement, it's a distortion. It is a lack of something. And beauty, well, beauty is an aspect of God. And the most beautiful creature ever was the Blessed Virgin Mary. Judith has this beauty that entices uh, Holofernes. He, he kind of gets him to stick out his neck, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> he is taken in by her beauty. The evil one, and God knows he does this a lot in our culture, manipulates beauty and wants to use it, uses manipulated beauty, and he does it many clicks a day, you could say. But there is something about beauty that the evil one will never understand. Because ultimately, beauty is something that is received, something that God bestows. So St. Bonaventure says in the Divine Comedy, he refers to God's love as the love that makes me beautiful. The love that makes me beautiful. True beauty, true beauty, which, the, which is the beauty of the soul, the beauty of, of good character, that is something bestowed by God. And that's why it's confounding to the evil one, because he wants to seize things and have them for himself. But God makes us beautiful by his grace and by enabling us to cooperate with his grace. And so that beauty is confounding to him. And Our Lady is all beautiful. With that in mind, let me turn now to Esther, which, by the way, did you know it was... Madonna's name. I mean, not the Madonna, but Madonna's name in, in Kabbalah, when she had one of her religious fits, she took the name Esther, which is kind of uh, a tribute that, you know, hypocrisy is the tribute that vice pays to virtue. Um, so, turning to Esther, let me summarize the, the scene again. Now the people of God are in exile. And the king is displeased with his queen. And so he dismisses her and he searches for a new queen. And he searches throughout his empire, throughout his kingdom for a new queen. And the one that is chosen is more beautiful than all the rest. The king, that was his only criterion. Okay. The one chosen as more beautiful than all the rest is Esther, a Jew. And so Esther is brought into the king's palace. Now Esther was the cousin of Mordecai. Mordecai actually really was kind of a father figure to her. And Mordecai has run afoul of the king's right-hand man, Haman, and Haman has great power in the kingdom. Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman. So Haman goes to the, to the king and says, this guy has snubbed me. I'd like to destroy his people. And the king, sounds kind of like an absent-minded administrator. He says, well, sure, you know, whatever you want to do. You know, I trust you. And so... Haman sends out uh, messengers to all of the cities of the kingdom, establishing the day for the destruction of the Jews. The day that the people of God are to be destroyed. Mordecai appeals to Esther and says, Esther, you need to go plead our case. And he says to her, remember the days of your lowly estate. Invoke the Lord and speak to the king for us. Save us from death. Esther 
has access to the king that no one else has. She is Jewish, and therefore she is one of the people that is under this penalty of death, slated for execution. But she is the queen, so she has access to the king. So she has a union with both, so she can intercede in a way that no one else can. The threat is that all of the people, God's people, will be destroyed because of a false accusation, because of one man in the king's court who has accused them. So she intercedes, and the people are saved. And not only that, but Haman is executed on the same gallows that were meant for Mordecai. On the same gallows that were meant for Mordecai. In other words, he built this thing, and he couldn't wait for the day that he was going to execute who refused to bow down to him, and he was counting the days. And then it all switched, and he was the one who was executed there by the king. What does this teach us about Our Lady? Well, I think the the application, the, the, the prefigurement should be clear. The people of God really kind of are under the penalty of death, right? Uh, in a sense, all mankind, but also the church is persecuted. We are persecuted by one who once was a faithful member of God's household, Lucifer, who once was right there in the celestial court, is now persecuting us and accusing us. And we have someone to intercede for us. We have a queen who is one with us, who has shared our lowly estate, has not shared sinfulness with us, but has shared our lowly estate. She knows what it means to be in this world. She knows what it means to encounter the suffering and the pain of this world. In fact, Mary understands the suffering of this world better than we do. Mary understands the suffering of this world better than we do. Why is that? Because she has the ear with perfect pitch. The ear with perfect pitch can appreciate beautiful music better than anyone else. Because that person knows exactly how the piece is supposed to be, and when it's done just so, they appreciate it more than anyone else. Unfortunately, the ear with perfect pitch is also hurt by bad music more than anyone else is hurt. Because that ear knows exactly how that music ought to be, but isn't. Well, Our Lady's soul... It's the ear with perfect pitch. She is all pure. She knows how things ought to be. She is what we ought to be. And so the sinfulness around her, just in her little town, think of the gossip in her little town, just this one thing. The gossip in her town, the gossip about her and Joseph. Just the glances. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Mary was pregnant before she should have been. (laughs) Just think that this, this one thing. And think of how much that would hurt us and how much it would have hurt Our Lady who doesn't have any spiritual calluses the way we do. We build up calluses so that things don't hurt us quite as much. But Our Lady, she understands the suffering of this world far more than we do. And so she remembers her lowly estate when she was here, the mere handmaid of the Lord. So we can appeal to her as someone who understands what we're going through, in fact, understands the suffering better than we can realize, better than we do. And at the same time, she is perfectly united with the king. Perfectly united with the king. There's no one who enjoys greater union with God than the Blessed Virgin Mary. And since she has union both with us and with him, she is the perfect mediatrix for us. She's the perfect intercessor or advocate She has unique access to the king. An interesting detail in the book of Esther is that no one could come into the king's presence unless the king summoned that person. Esther comes into his presence without being summoned. I think another hint of Our Lady's boldness, they have no wine. Our Lady is bold in her requests of her son. Esther is a hint of that boldness. No one was supposed to come into the presence of the king unless the king summoned that person. Esther did not wait. She went into his presence 
unsummoned, with great boldness in her prayer. There's an interesting aspect in the book of Esther that I think is important for us, perhaps too fine a detail, I hope not. The book sort of has a false ending. Haman is revealed as a villain. The king sees everything clearly. He suddenly sees, oh my gosh, Mordecai's the good guy. Haman's the bad guy. I've got to switch things here. Haman gets executed. Mordecai gets elevated. And it should be they, they live happily ever after. And, and, that, and, you know, cut to the credits. That's it. But the story goes on because remember, the villain, Haman, had sent out letters to all of the cities establishing the day for the execution of God's people. And that was going to happen unless the victory was, in a sense, applied to each place. And Esther participates in this. It's a wonderful way of understanding the distinction between redemption and salvation. The victory is won on the cross and Our Lady's perfect cooperation at the foot of the cross. But that's not the end of the story. Everything has been won there, but remember, the devil's work has infiltrated, has gone not just throughout the world, but throughout time. And so the victory that is won on the cross has to be applied to every city, to every parish, to every soul. And so in the book of Esther, they have to kind of play catch-up and send out other letters saying, stop. And in fact, the king says, now the Jews enjoy special privileges now. And so the work of the church is very much to, to go and apply, this is precisely the work of the church, to apply the fruits of the redemption, to go to each person and save each person from the destruction that the enemy of God's people desired for that person. Uh, the victory has already been won. You have already won. Every parish is simply a distribution center. Okay? Christ has won all the graces necessary. Every parish is distributing them. In one sense, it costs you nothing. In another sense, it's going to cost you your life. Okay. And so, Esther also reminds us that that sort of double ending in the book of Esther reminds us of Our Lady's continuing participation in the work of our salvation. She cooperated at the foot of the cross, but she still works to apply the fruits of victory to each soul, to every time and every place. Finally, for this evening, the last image of Our Lady, or shadow of Our Lady, that I want to touch on, is the mother of the Maccabees. Called so because she is the mother spoken of in 2 Maccabees chapter 7. It's a pretty gruesome scene. We had it as, as a Sunday reading not long ago, and I love it. Because all of us here in suburbia hear this brutal thing, this brutal reading. And at the end of it, we all say, thanks be to God. And then open the missalette, look for the psalm, right? Okay. But let's take notice of the mother in this scene. And again, let me set the stage. Once again, the people of God are being persecuted. Are you sensing a theme? Okay. <laughs> So next time you feel downtrodden and persecuted, next time you think, you know, feel like Catholics are getting a bad rap, okay, well that's, as Cardinal Ratzinger once said, it is, it is in the nature of the church to suffer. Okay, when we look at God's people in the Old Testament, we shouldn't be surprised when we encounter persecution. We as the new Israel. And so 2 Maccabees 7, the people of God are under threat again. And some of them have chosen to resist what, what was called Hellenization. In other words... <laughs> Well, actually, pretty good to take stock of this right now. Everybody's saying, come on. Everybody's going this way now. Everybody's going Greek. Okay? And so taking on Greek customs, you know, Greek clothing, Greek worship, everything like that. Why can't you Jews do the same thing? Come on. And many did. Many went along with it and said, yeah, you know, I'm... Uh, personally, I'm Jewish, but, you know, publicly, I'm, I'm just like everybody else, okay? Uh, but, but a group said, yeah, no, we are going to re remain steadfast. And it would, it would amaze us 
the, um, the specific things and the seemingly minor things that they would die over, just you know, the dietary laws, for example. But that was the place where they would fight for their loyalty to God and the refusal to, uh, to apostatize. And so in chapter 7 of 2 Maccabees, we hear about seven brothers. Seven. Not an accident that it's seven. It's not four. It's not six. It's not, definitely not 13, right? Um, it's seven. A number, of course, of, um, that uh, conveys perfection or fulfillment. And so seven brothers and their mother are arrested and are compelled to eat pork. A seemingly minor thing to us, but that was, not to eat it was a sign of devotion to the Lord. And so they refused to eat it, and because of their refusal, they were executed. And the king has great sport with them, and the sons show themselves as truly heroic. One of them says, you accursed wretch, you dismiss us from this present life, but the king of the universe will raise us up to an everlasting renewal of life because we have died for his laws. There is the beginning of the profession of faith in the resurrection of the dead. The third son says, he puts forth his hands for torture and says, I got these from heaven and because of his laws I disdain them. And from him I hope to get them back again. And so he, because of his faith in the resurrection, does this as well. And the fourth, likewise, bears witness to the resurrection. And the fifth and the sixth. And then it says, The mother was especially admirable and worthy of honorable memory. Though she saw her seven sons perish within a single day, she bore it with good courage because of her hope in the Lord. And encouraged each of them in the noble language of in, in the language of their fathers. Filled with a noble spirit, she fired her woman's reasoning with a man's courage, and said to them, I do not know how you came into being in my womb. It was not I who gave you life and breath, nor I who set in order the elements within each of you. Therefore the creator of the world who shaped the beginning of man and devised the origin of all things, will in his mercy give life and breath back to you again, since you now forsake yourselves for the sake of his laws. I think the application to Our Lady is clear. She did not have seven sons, seven being the number of fulfillment or perfection, but she had one perfect son who is the fulfillment of all. And he is the one, more than anyone else, who gave his life because of his trust in the Father that he would be raised from the dead. If we want to know what perhaps was going through Our Lady's heart and mind as she stood beneath the cross, these passages are a pretty good introduction to that. Our Lady was not just standing at the foot of the cross doing nothing. She was encouraging her son. She was exhorting him to do what he must do in order for her to be immaculately conceived and for us to have salvation. She was not just grieving the death of her son. She was obviously grieving the death of her son. But she, at the same time, knew that this death was necessary. And she encouraged him to give his life. It's an extraordinary thing to keep in mind and, and to think about. And I, I think a lot of times when we think about Our Lady at the foot of the cross, it's just sort of pity. We go, go gosh, you know, that's really too bad. Her son was killed and she was right there. But, you know, it was a good thing she was there. It was nice of her to be there. But her role there was so much more profound than that. She was there to support him in what he had to do. And it never would have crossed her mind to say, oh, don't do this, come on. Don't you think you're going a bit too far? It never crossed her mind to keep him from this task of giving his life. So listen again to what 
the mother of the Maccabees says. And I'll tweak it a bit so that we can perhaps hear Our Lady saying the same. I do not know how you came into being in my womb. It was not I who gave you life and breath, nor I who set in order the elements within you. Therefore, the creator of the world who shaped the beginning of man and devised the origin of all things will in his mercy give life and breath back to you again, since you now forsake yourself for his sake. Our Lady saying that to her son as he's hanging upon the cross, because he will not forsake the ways of his father. And again, later on, and just by the way, they're kind of having fun at the king's expense, because they're speaking in their native tongue. It's driving the king crazy. Leaning close to him, she spoke in their native tongue as follows, deriding the cruel tyrant. And again, hear our lady saying this, My son, have pity on me. I carried you nine months in the womb and nursed you for three years and have reared you and brought you up to this point in your life and have taken care of you. I beseech you, my child, to look at the heaven and the earth and see everything that is in them. Recognize that God did not make them out of things that existed. Thus also mankind comes into being. Do not fear this butcher, but prove worthy of your brothers. Accept death so that in God's mercy I may get you back again with your brothers. Now obviously, you know, things need to be tweaked a little bit in in order for it to be precisely Our Lady's words, but it is certainly her sentiments, what is in her heart, wanting him to make this sacrifice. And And she says, accept death so that in God's mercy I may get you back again. She has faith right there at the foot of the cross and hope that she will receive him back again. And think of what uh, encouragement that must have been to our Lord, uh, that his mother is right there. There's that wonderful uh, meditation in the Stations of the Cross when our Lord meets his mother, and St. Alphonsus Liguri says that their looks became as so many arrows to wound the hearts that love each other so tenderly, something to that effect. In other words, when our Lord sees her, She is a source of support to him, and at the same time a source of sadness because he sees how much she is suffering. She looks at him, and he is at one and the same time a source of inspiration and, and joy for him because she sees that he is redeeming the world, but at the same time a source of sadness for her because she sees his suffering. And so it's kind of a nice lesson of how in the Catholic life, joy and sorrow are often traveling together. And how Our Lady at the foot of the cross, in the midst of her sorrow, still knew that she had to encourage and exhort her son to make this sacrifice. It's not unknown in the secular realm. You know, the the Spartan mothers were reputed to have instructed their sons when their sons were going off to battle. They would say, you come back carrying your shield or on it. In other words, <laughs> don't come back as a turncoat. Don't come back as a coward or someone who ran away from battle. You come back carrying your shield or on it. Now, the Spartans really were known for only warfare. Okay, I, I don't know of any Spartan art or poetry. Okay, uh, But that spirited exhortation of a mother to her son, wanting him to do what he as a man needs to do, that is realized in Our Lady most of all at the foot of the cross. The mother of the Maccabees is a great image of that in exhorting her seven sons to give their lives. Our Lady is the fulfillment of that at the foot of the cross. Thank you very much. God bless. Thank you very much, Father Scalia. Before we take our uh, quick break for Q&A. I... Okay, questions. And remember that, uh, as we talked about last week, we're going to try to alternate the questions, one on this side of the room, <laughs> okay, and then on the, uh, this, uh, another on, so, so I can get my exercise. To, to go back and forth. Yes. Uh.
I have the New American Bible, yeah, I, and it does not have the word ravished, and I wondered what your version is. I, I'm using the uh, Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition from Ignatius Press. It's what I always use. Uh, Father, you mentioned about Mary being a prefigurement of the church. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes, good. Thank you for reminding me. <laughs> kind of was something I said I was going to talk about. Uh, well, in each of those women, uh, we see a prefigurement of Our Lady, and, and therefore something of the church as well. And so Mother Church uh, sort of exhorting us, if you will, to sacrifice. The beauty of the church is something that, A, needs to be cultivated, and, and B, is confounding to, to the evil one. You know, it's, there's a, a fascinating interview with Ratzinger years and years ago, and he was asked, what is the most convincing aspect of the Catholic faith, something to that effect. And he gave an answer that you wouldn't typically expect for the man who was in charge of dogma. He said that the greatest convincer is the beauty of the saints and the church's patrimony of art, which is, uh, it's, it's counterintuitive. Well, you know, it's not, you know, this dogma or that dogma or whatever else. Uh, no, it, it is beauty that really um, brings people uh, around uh, a lot. Dostoevsky has the famous line, the beauty will save the world. I think that might be a little, little generous, but there is the, the beauty of a holy life that the church seeks to imbue us with and to, to make us beautiful in the church herself uh, in her perfection in heaven and in her better moments here on earth is beautiful. And we try to build beautiful structures. Uh, Hugo Rahner uh, in that book talks about Mary at the font. That, that Our Lady is somehow, you know, she is present at the sacraments because she is the one who carried the first Christ in her womb. And so the church carries and bears Christians, the new Christs. And so if you think about um, the woman clothed with the sun uh, that John sees, uh, Revelation chapter 12, and the, the discussion is, well, who is it exactly? Is it the church? Is it Mary? And of course we say, well, it's both. The woman clothed with the sun is an image of Our Lady and an image of the church. And so in Mary, we find the embodiment of Mother Church, of the Bride of Christ, the Virgin Mother. We find the embodiment of all those things. Uh, for example, Virgin Mother. Uh, Our Lady is the Virgin Mother. Uh, she is Virgin uh, before, during, and after birth. The church is a Virgin Mother in the sense that she bears life. Huh? She has children, but she remains virginal in that she maintains the faith pure in all of its integrity, in all of its purity and entirety. And so uh, the church is a virgin mother as well. Okay, you didn't have to take Father seriously. <laughs> <laughs> Father, when you were talking about Judith, you mentioned that there were lines from Judith that were used in the liturgy pertaining to Mary. What are they? to get up my... All right. <laughs> can't believe that. Okay. Oh, here it is. Benedicta tu es filia, adeo excelso pre omnibus. Okay. Okay. Judith 13, uh, 18 to 19. Blessed are you. Uh, it is what the leader of the city says to Judith when she comes back. O oh, daughter, you are blessed by the Most High God above all women on earth. And blessed be the Lord God who created the heavens and the earth, who has guided you to strike the head of the leader of our enemies. Your hope will never depart from the hearts of men as they remember the power of God. I mean, we can hear those words and, I mean, they're perfectly applied to Mary, more perfectly applied to Mary than to Judith. So Judith 13, uh, 18 to 19. In the Liturgy of the Hours, it's used uh, in the Common of the Blessed Virgin Mary in daytime prayer. Uh, one last thing. Yeah, you might not applaud after this. Because <laughs> I'm going to ask for money too, okay? But not for myself. No, I just I want to encourage you to support the Institute, uh, which uh, grew at St. John's, my parish, for several years, and then really outgrew St. John's. I mean, uh, some of your veterans of, of the... The, the packed meetings. I, I imagine some of you are at Chris Check's talk when the room was so crowded. Uh, it was a night much like tonight. 
and people were actually outside the room, like in the cold, you know, listening through a cracked window. Um, and Chris Check's a good friend of mine. I don't think he's that great a speaker. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> but um, actually, he is. I mean, and it's it was, it's one of his best talks is the Ponto. And uh, and now by uh, I mean going to these different parishes, it's really sort of stirring things up at other parishes. So I really encourage you to contribute. The work that is done here, I I always wince when he did you did you call it catechetics again? Did you do that again? Yeah, he did it again, didn't he? Okay. I, this is uh, really, really good stuff. And just by the way, a lot of the stuff that you would hear from Dr. O'Donnell or soon-to-be doctor, expectant Dr. Carnazzo, um, it's going to be better than what I got in the seminary. I mean, honestly. So I, I encourage you. That might frighten you, okay? But I mean it to encourage you. Really, it's just it's top-notch. Please uh, think about giving a, a Christmas contribution, and even more so, making a commitment in the, in the future, uh, a pledge. Thank you very much. Let's uh, stand and conclude with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. taught by our Savior's command, formed by the Word of God, we dare to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go in peace. Thank you very much, Father Scalia. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.